It's working through um, the text this week. Before we jump into Revelation, I want to share with you what just really powerfully impacted me um, earlier in the week. I was working through Psalms, and I see this passage here. We're not even sure who wrote it. We, we know Psalms is written primarily by King David, but this particular Psalm, Psalms 33, if you look in your Bible, it says anonymous because we're not sure who wrote it down. But in Psalm 33, this writer says something specific about God's nature and character. Let me read it to you. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap, and he lays up the deeps in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Verse 12 says this, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. You get to play a role, if you're old enough to vote this week, in helping to direct our country. Regardless of the outcome of elections, God is still in control of everything that happens. So if he exalts some to power and allows others to fall from power, it's by his hand. We know that nothing escapes his notice. So this morning, before we move into Revelation, because Psalm 33 speaks very specifically to God's power, I wanted to pray with you about the direction of our nation. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me about what's going to happen on Tuesday. Would you do that? Father, we know that you control all things. You said there's nothing that escapes your attention. You've given us the privilege of living in a country that has democracy at its root. And so thereby we get to exercise that and, and give our vote to individuals whom we believe will rule justly. Now, Father, you also command us to pray for those who are in power and to lift them up before you. And so from the president and his cabinet and those who serve in the House and the Senate, we lift them up to you asking that you would guide them to make godly decisions. For the individuals who lead our military troops in the Pentagon, and they guide individuals all around the world and individuals who serve in uniforms every day. Father, we ask, first of all, for your protection, but we ask that you would allow them to serve justly and righteously before you. Regarding what's going to happen on Tuesday, God, we lift up to you the elections that will take place, asking that you allow us to be very informed and to be determining who we vote for based on our information and not just because of a casting of a vote, because it's a duty, but rather because we understand what we're voting for, because you've given us a responsibility. Regardless of what happens on Tuesday, God, we know that you will work your plan and your purpose. So we just ask that you would be in the midst of it. Finally now, Father, as we look to your word and we understand that it's your nature and character to reveal yourself through what was written down, we ask that you give us understanding through the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Psalm 33 that I just read to you a few minutes ago says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. The host are stars. 
When it says host there, it's talking about the formation of stars. So what we have an explanation of here is that God breathes out stars. When he created the universe, it says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. That's your God. The God who breathes out the stars is the same God you just sang about in that first song. Oh no, he never lets go. He can create the universe and hold on to you. Scripture says specifically, we're not just citizens of this planet that we live on, but that we're citizens of heaven. Philippians 3.20 says specifically, we are citizens of heaven, an actual, literal place, a real place that we will go to one day if we belong to Jesus Christ. You know that there's three different heavens mentioned in Scripture? The first heaven is the space around us, the atmosphere. Second heaven, interstellar space. Scripture refers to that. The third heaven is the heaven where God dwells. That's the heaven that we're going to look at this morning. If you think last week created lots of questions for you at lunchtime, you wait for today. This is amazing description detail that we get of what heaven looks like. Lots of lunchtime conversation. So I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles, if you have them with you this morning, to Revelation chapter 21. If you came in this morning and you picked up one of the bulletins, you probably picked up one of the study guide notes, and you also found in there um, a little chart that guides you through what we've studied so far. There's several pages um, in the notes that were handed out this morning. One of the pages begins with the beginning of the tribulation and takes you all the way to the end. If you find at the end of one of those charts, it says the beginning of the eternal order. That's what we're looking at this morning, the beginning of the eternal order. Jerry has about 10 extras of those to hand out. If you didn't get one this morning and you want it, just go ahead and raise your hand and he'll make sure you get it. We ran just about out of them at the door. So that chart gives you a timeline of where we're at in sequence, understanding that This is the beginning of eternity in Revelation chapter 21, okay? So look with me in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find them in the pew racks in front of you, but also the passages will be up on the screen so you can follow along as well. Okay, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. You notice that John started out again with the words, I saw, I adu, I-D-O-O-U. It's the same way he started out many of the other passages. He literally saw, and is going in chronological sequence. He says, I saw something remarkable, a new heaven and a new earth. I want you to understand what he was talking about here. So I'm going to show you the definition for the word on the screen that he used when he said new. The word is kainos. It's not like a new piece of clothing, okay? Look at the definition for it. New, especially in freshness, something brand new, fresh, never before seen. It's because of that definition we chose the name new hope for this church. Something fresh from God. Something never before seen. This is the word that John is using here. A literal new planet. A new earth. And he says why? For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. So God's creating a brand new realm 
something never seen before, a new earth, a new planet, and something is going to happen remarkable as you're going to see as we get into this. Specifically, God said in the Old Testament that he was going to do this, and then it's repeated again in the New Testament. Look with me on the screen, Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, this is God speaking, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Why? Why in the world would God wipe out creation and bring in this new earth? Because the original planet, this planet that we live on, was created specifically for man to live on permanently until sin came into the picture and the world was corrupted. Literally, not just the earth and the planet, but God said, all of the heavens were corrupted at the fall of Lucifer when the angels rebelled and at the fall of man, sin entered our environment. God said the way he looks at this planet now is as polluted. Let me read you Job 15.15. This is what it says. The heavens are not pure in his sight. Isaiah 24.5, the earth is also polluted by its inhabitants. We're not talking about garbage we're talking about sin, has corrupted God's creation. And so the old earth, the old heavens pass away here in the last days, the end times, and a new earth is created. Jesus said specifically this was going to happen in Luke 21, 33. Heaven and earth will pass away. Peter went on further to give us a description of what's going to happen. You saw it last week. Let me bring it up for you again. 2 Peter 3.10, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. You believe in global warming? Okay, this is the ultimate global warming taking place here. We're talking about the passing away of the old creation. It's literally an elimination of everything we've ever known. Now, at this point, we're with God in heaven when this takes place. Understand, according to, because you have the chart, you can follow that. What we studied last week means that all who have rejected God, Satan, the demons, everyone who died in their sin without receiving Jesus have already been cast into the lake of fire. And John is now seeing this amazing sight in which he sees this city coming down from God that he's prepared and it's descending on this new planet, this new earth. So look with me at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. This description that you're seeing here is of the capital city. This is not heaven itself. What you're about to see here is a literal description of the details, very specific details about what the heavenly city looks like. So the new Jerusalem is not heaven itself that John's writing about. It's heaven's capital, capital city. And in verse 16, when we get to it, you'll see a blueprint for the city, the description of what John saw. Now, in the Bible, when you read Jerusalem or the new Jerusalem or the holy city, it's talking about what we have on earth today, Jerusalem over in Israel. And the word Jerusalem is called the holy city because it's something that God set apart for his own purposes. The same will be true with the new Jerusalem, something set apart, but it's altogether a new city. Verse uh, 
Um, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 16 says specifically that those who belong to the faith of God, who follow after Jesus Christ, look forward to that city for a specific reason. Look with me on the screen at Hebrews eleven sixteen. They, meaning us, desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The implication is the city already exists. Jesus spoke to that. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. The city is constructed, but he's preparing it for our arrival. And then it says also in Hebrews 11.10, the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Anyone here like architecture? Do Do you love looking at fancy buildings? Come on, more than nod the heads. Show everybody. Okay, you're wearing the imprint of God upon you. God is an architect. Look at that verse very closely. The city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. You're an image bearer of God if you love architecture. That's one of his stamps upon you. If you appreciate fine architecture, look at the definition for architect on the screen. Tenectes, an artisan, a creator, a craftsman. Does that resound within you, within your spirit? Say, yeah, I identify with that. I am a craftsman. God is an architect, and with his architectural ability, he's designing this city for our arrival. That's why it says, whose architect and builder is God. Now, we understand from what Scripture tells us that when believers die, you've got a family member or a friend who's died, who was in the faith, they belong to Jesus Christ, they go instantly to this heavenly Jerusalem. They're with God in heaven. And you're going to see a description of that in just a minute. This is what Jesus said about that heavenly city. John 14, 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. That word places is the word monet, and it means mansion. In my Father's house are many dwelling mansions, places, If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Understand where we're at. John's seeing this amazing new creation, a monstrous planet. I believe much bigger than planet Earth, and I'll show you why in just a little bit. John sees this amazing new creation, new heavens, new earth, and this beautiful gleaming city coming down, descending on planet earth, the new dwelling place. And he says something very specific. It looks like a bride adorned for her husband. There is nothing more beautiful than a woman coming down the aisle in her wedding gown being presented to her husband. And John's stretching for words, and he says, it's It's so beautiful, it's like a bride being presented to her husband. As a matter of fact, the word that's used here, adorned, is cosmeo. We use the word cosmos when we speak of the outer space, right? Cosmos has a very specific definition. Look with me on the screen. An orderly arrangement, i.e. decoration. The root word for cosmos also is found in the English language in the word cosmetics. When individuals use cosmetics, they're putting things in order 
for adoration, for decoration. So John can't think of a better description than to say, it's like a gorgeous woman, and she's in cosmos. She's adorned with beauty. He doesn't know how else to describe it. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. When I think of the ultimate joy of heaven, I don't just think of the perfect body. I don't just necessarily think of getting to see loved ones who have gone before me. I have to think, according to what this says, that the ultimate joy of heaven, we get to hang out with God. God has never before in the history of man dwelt with man. Look with me. This is so staggering. It says it three times in one paragraph. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is one among men, and he will, too, dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and three, and God himself will be among them. Three times in one paragraph. This is absolutely astounding. And John uses a very specific word. He says, not only will they dwell among God, they will skene. Look with me at the definition. Skene means tabernacle, dwelling place, or tent. You like to go camping? Okay, there's something about camping that's very folksy, isn't there? In the Middle East, when you said you were to set up your tent, it meant that you were going to invite those around you to be part of your tent experience. John's saying God is going to dwell in a monster state park campground among us, okay? He's setting up a tent. Now, it doesn't look like a tent. You're going to see that in just a minute. It's an amazing description. So the joy that we have is not that we just get to see relatives who's gone on before us, not that we get these amazing bodies that you're going to learn about in just a minute, but that we get to be with God, and Scripture says we will see him. That has never happened before in the history of the world. Man cannot look upon God. If man looks upon God according to Scripture, he will perish. But in these heavenly bodies, we'll be able to see God in his fullness because it says we will see him as he is. Look with me on the screen and see what God's going to do for us. Verse 4, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. What you just read about there is the reversal of the curse. It's the reversal of what was put on planet Earth in Genesis 3 when man fell. Man rejected God. God brought a curse upon the Earth. And we've been living in these fallen bodies ever since then. We've been living in a fallen world. You're seeing a reversal of everything that was negative. And John has to use negatives to describe it because it's so far beyond our understanding. Look at what he uses. He will wipe away every tear. That's a negative. There will be no longer any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. Anybody here have pain? God's saying he's going to wipe it out. Now look at the successive order in which it goes. 
First it says, there's no death. So since there's no death, there's not going to be any mourning. And since there's no mourning, there's no crying. God will wipe away every tear. Isaiah 25, 8, look on the screen. Look at the tenderness of your God. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Is that not a tender God? Who do you think of when you think of your tears being wiped away? I think of my mom. I think of being a child when my mom would wipe away tears. This is your God saying, I'm big enough to breathe the stars out, but I'm also tender enough to wipe away the tears from your eyes. Why? Because there will be no more pain. I understand from my examination of Scripture and many other theologians agree, we get a brand new body. We get a whole new beginning. Scripture says as Jesus was seen after the resurrection in a perfect body, that's the way we will be known. Now let me put this in context for you. Think back to the time of the Garden of Eden. We've got the days of creation. God, according to what Moses wrote in Genesis 1, spoke the worlds into existence, spoke the life in the seas into existence, he said morning and evening were the, what, third day, first day. Moved on through each of the successive six days, and at the end of each six days, he said it was what? Good. Gets to the end of the sixth day, he's created man, and he looks at everything he's brought into existence and says it is very good. Now, even Adam, before the fall, Perfect muscle structure, perfect eyesight, perfect teeth, perfect brain power. They actually knew what an appendix was for. We have no idea what our tonsils are for. We have created from God in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden a perfect human structure. Would it not be just like our God to give perfection in heaven as well? So a perfect body. So therefore, he can say, there's no pain. You're not going to hurt whatsoever. Those aches and pains you might feel in the morning, and I don't care if you're a child or an adult, you feel pain. God's saying, no more pain. Why? Because the first things have passed away. That's what it says. And behold, behold is the word we, we learned back in early part of Revelation study, meaning pay attention. And when he says behold, he's saying, look, all the signals on the dashboard are going off. Look at this very closely. I am making all things new. Amazing. Is it not that your God would say, I'm wiping out the past and I'm bringing all things in that will be new? Who could declare that? He said there's only one that can declare that. The Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. He's saying, I'm the letter A and I'm the letter Z. And any letter in between, you take any letters and construct whatever word you want, that's me. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the one that can declare it. So he said, since I started history, I can end history. And so this is the beginning of the eternal order. Verse 7. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, this is telling me that heaven belongs to the overcomer. Do you remember the word that you learned in the very first couple weeks of Revelation for overcomer? Nikao. 
It's where the company Nike gets their name. Look with me at the definition on the screen. Nikao, to subdue, conquer, overcome, prevail, to get the victory. So if you're wearing Nikes, you're wearing something very biblical, okay? You're an overcomer. That's a promise to you. He who, Nikao, will inherit these things. You ever inherited anything? Peter actually says what we're about to inherit is imperishable. It won't fade away. Look with me on the screen. 1 Peter 1.4. We obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So, He's saying two promises there. Not only will the overcomer, the nikao, get these things that you're about to learn about, but also that you're going to be adopted fully as God's son. Right now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God has his stamp on you. He has sealed you and said, that one's mine. But it's fully realized in eternity when the adoption process is complete. And he says, you will be my son. And ladies, understand, that's very generic, okay? He's talking about all of humankind. You will be my son. So the adoption process is complete. Verse 8 is a warning. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and adulterers and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So we get this last final reminder. And do you notice who he calls out first? But for the cowardly. That is specifically referring to, in a very harsh way, those who fall away, who looked like they had a faith in Jesus Christ, but it wasn't genuine. They fell away. Jesus told parables about individuals like this. Matthew 7, 7 says, individuals will come to Jesus in the last day and say, Lord, Lord, we did miracles in your name. We cast out demons. We healed the sick. And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. That's the cowardly. Those are those who say they belong, but they don't live like it. There's no real faith. They're not walking with God. And so he's saying, I'm ranking it right up there. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the immoral persons, they're all on the same plane. It's an amazing warning. So these are those who, when they faced opposition, turned and walked the other way. And they're not Christ followers, really. That's the last time we see these individuals mentioned. Now he moves on to a description of this amazing city. Verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. You know, we have not seen one of those tribulation angels since before the millennial kingdom. And all of a sudden, one of the tribulation angels jumps forward in time a thousand years and meets up with John. Do you see that first sentence? Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, that's a tribulation angel who's come forward and said, John, come here, I gotta show you this. 
And he takes him to this really high mountain and says, let me show you what's coming down. And the brilliance of this city is beginning to be described. This present heaven that you're about to see, I believe, is the place where believers, when they die, go to be with God. And ultimately, God's going to allow this city to descend on planet Earth. And God's given us a brilliant, amazing description of it. I want you to do one thing with me. Hold up one page like that of Revelation chapter 21 in your Bible. Revelation 21 and 22 are found on those two pages right there. This is all you get in all of the Bible about the description of heaven, that one page. Everything else we get in the Bible is references to heaven, but this is the only description we get of heaven right here in these two pages. He says, I see this holy city coming down from God, and it has what? This very specific description. It has the glory of God surrounding it. This is the Shekinah glory. The first feature that we see of heaven as it comes down is that it's completely unlimited. It's unconfined in any way, and it's brilliant in its sparkling appearance. As a matter of fact, there's a word that's used here that describes brilliance. Look with me on the screen. The word is foster. Here's the definition for it. An illuminator, concretely a luminary or abstract, brilliancy, something from which light radiates. It's used earlier in Scripture in the book of Genesis. When God formed the heavens, the word foster is used. So when Moses wrote down that God formed the sun in the sky, he uses this word to describe the illuminary, the source of light. So John's looking at this heavenly city coming down, and it's brilliant in its light. And it's descending like a luminary. Now look at his description in verse 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. That it has a great high wall means there's very specific dimensions to this. It has limits and boundaries. The truth about heaven in Scripture is that we get a very limited amount of detail. It's described, but we really struggle to understand it. But we notice something very specific. It does have a detail, and it says there's not one pearly gate. There's 12 gates. Do you see that? Not one. You hear the jokes about Peter standing at the pearly gate? Well, Peter would have to clone himself. There's actually 12 of them. And streaming from all directions, people can enter this city and go back out from this city, but it's where the presence of God is. And at the entrance of the city, we see an example of the legacy of God's work on planet Earth. Do you notice that it said, on the gates there are 12 angels and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. So God's legacy of his work on Earth through the nation of Israel being reminded to us when we go to heaven, and also a reminder of his work through each of you, like Sparrow's Nest, like our missionaries that we send overseas, like the work we do here in our community, the legacy of the work through the church. That's referred to also. Let me show you this. Look on the screen, Ephesians 2.19. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now keep that in mind. Look with me at verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So people walking through this great wall will see these massive gates and they see the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and they see the names of the apostles. A reminder of God working in harmony with the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant coming together. Constant reminder for us that God was at work. So from verse 14, we see anchored here on these walls are 12 foundation stones. Those are pretty remarkable. I cannot imagine what it might have been like to be John and go up to the wall of the city and see his name inscribed in that foundation stone. That's what it says. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles. I've been to the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. I've seen those little half-inch letters inscribed in granite. People get the paper out and they scribble on it trying to copy the name of their friends who have fallen in the Vietnam War. This is not a little half-inch letter inscribed in some small piece of granite. This is the wall of an amazingly large city. Look at the description with me in verse 15. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as a great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. What's the biggest city you've ever been to in your life? I've been to New York City. I've been to Los Angeles. Los Angeles is number nine on the biggest cities in the world list. New York City is number six. They don't even make it into the top three. Number one, Tokyo, Japan. Number two, Seoul, South Korea. Number three, Mexico City. Now get in your mind a perspective of the size of what we're talking about here. First of all, notice that it's a cube in shape. If you were to lay this city out, it would go from New York City to Cancun, Mexico. From Cancun, Mexico to Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix, Arizona to Billings, Montana. Billings, Montana back to New York City. And it says that it's as wide and long as it is high. Now, apparently, God's got a thing for cubes. I'm going to show you a description of this, of the Holy of Holies from the Old Testament. Look with me on the screen. These are God's directions about how to build the place where the Ark of the Covenant was going to go. 1 Kings 6.19. Then he prepared an inner sanctuary within the house in order to place there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, and 20 cubits in height, and he overlaid it with pure gold. God apparently likes cubes, and apparently what John is seeing is a 1,500-mile cube coming down. NASA says that space begins at 76 miles. That's where the space shuttle begins using aerodynamic controls as opposed to thrusters when it re-enters the atmosphere. That apparently is a place where there's enough atmosphere to use aerodynamic controls. According to this, this city 
is 1,500 miles. Space on this planet begins at 76 miles. Our satellites circle the earth at 900 to 1,100 miles. Do you see that this cube, this new city coming down that John saw, would not fit on our planet? That's why I believe that this new earth that God's creating is much, much bigger than what we know today. Now, verse 17 tells us how thick the walls were. And he measured its walls 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Now, look what the wall is made up of. Verse 18 begins to wrap this up. The material of the wall was jasper. I'm going to stop right there. You ladies like diamonds? You into jewelry? Okay. As we understand it in archaeology, jasper is another word for diamond. So think John's seeing a city 1,500 miles square. It has 12 foundation layers to it, and the first layer is pure diamond. Not one little stone. We're talking the entire foundation. Okay. The material of the wall was jasper or diamond, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the 11th, jacinth, the 12th, amethyst. Do you love jewelry? You're biblical if you do. God loves jewelry, apparently, so much so that he's putting these precious gems into the wall of the very city that we will walk through. Do you see why John's struggling to describe this? No one's ever seen anything like this. And we're told that the walls will be clear, meaning everybody gets to see everybody else. I don't think there's going to be a need for hair curlers, so don't worry about that, okay? I think we're talking about perfection, so apparently completely clear walls, and John's listing all these stones, some of which have gone out of existence. We don't even know the definitions of some of these stones. We guess at the colors, but it's every color in the spectrum represented. Have you ever tried to describe a rainbow to someone? Have you ever tried to describe one of Mozart's symphonies? That's what you're looking at here. Imagine this. You can't get your mind around it. It's breathtaking. And it's massive. Look with me at the next verse. Verse 21. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Remember that scene in The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy comes up to the Emerald City? And you see those big green doors open up. Now, Dorothy and the Tin Man are way down here and the doors are way up here. I'm kind of picturing that type of proportion. A 1,500-mile wall with pearl gates that are 12 and each one's made from one pearl. How big does that oyster have to be? I mean, (laughs) what do you do with that? I know that God has given us these words to excite us and to help us anticipate and build hope because it's a fresh new thing. Not only a new body, not only reunion with those who have gone before us, not only the presence of God himself, 
but this amazing description. I put in your notes today a little quote. There's a paragraph there from John Phillips. I'm just going to read part of it to you. Uh, For those that don't have the notes, this is kind of an insight from John. John Phillips is looking at this, and he's thinking about the significance of a pearl being the gated entrance. Listen to his description. John is a theologian that lives here in the 20th century. All other precious gems are metals or stones, but a pearl is a gem formed within the oyster, the only one formed by living flesh. The humble oyster receives an irritation or a wound, and around the offending article that has penetrated and hurt it, the oyster builds a pearl. The pearl, we might say, is the answer of the oyster to that which injured it. How like God it is to make the gates of the new Jerusalem of pearl. The saints, as they come and go, will be forever reminded as they pass the gates of glory that access to God's home is only because of Calvary. Interesting insight. And those gates never close, as you're going to learn next week. Now, this has been like a real estate tour, okay? The realtor has taken you up to the outside of the building, but not gone inside. That's what we're going to do next week. Next week, we're going to go inside the heavenly city and look at it. John's guide will take us along. Here's a truth for you. If we can keep this image in our mind, we can endure anything. John, Paul, Peter, they all wrote about it. Paul specifically in 2 Corinthians, he said, this place that we live on, it is like a light momentary affliction compared to the promise of what's ahead of us. Keep that in mind as we move ahead. Let me take you back to a verse that I started with today. I want to give you all of it this time. This is Jesus talking about your eternal city. John 14, 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. There's a second part in verse 4. And you know the way where I'm going. I love Thomas. (laughs) He's always pushing back. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You don't get there unless you go through Jesus. So this one who is the star breather, who said, I'll hold on to you and I'll never let go, is the one through whom we go to get there. What an incredible promise. Would you pray with me? Father, our hearts are admittedly encouraged as we read texts like this that you have been so deliberate as to be an architect to design what we're about to inherit and that you've promised it to us. Your promises are good, you never lie. You always do what you say you're going to do. So, Father, I ask as we take on this week, we don't know what lies ahead of us. 
but we believe that you control all things and all things work according to your plan and purpose. So, God, I ask when things are tough and when things are good this week that you remind us of our eternal citizenship, where we belong. Father, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.